we're in a series uh, called Resilient, Thriving in Crisis. And, and the purpose behind this series is because I know that for a lot of us, we may go to church and participate in activities of church, but never pause to know the why behind the things that we do. And so we've been talking about the why behind worship, the why behind scripture. And today we're going to continue in this understanding of the why. Why is it that you and I do the things that we do in church? It wasn't just that somebody came up with a great idea and said, hey, we need meal time, so let's have communion. Uh, the, the concept behind the things that are happening is that there is a long list of the why as to why these things happen. And today, what I want to do is I want to talk about what potentially is one of the most controversial things in all of the church, and that is this understanding of communion and asking the question, why should communion matter to me? Some of you come from backgrounds in which you took communion, and when you took communion, a priest would say to you in that moment that this is the actual body and blood of Christ. You called it the Eucharist. Others of you call this the Lord's Supper, and you went to a church that did it a couple of times a year. Some of you went to a church in which you did this every single week, and, uh, and you did it on a regular basis. Others of you went to a church in which they served grape juice, which is what we do. Others of you went to a church where they served wine, and you watched the high school kids line up and take it four or five times, right? Uh, I, I remember several years ago, I was at a Lutheran church for a Christmas Eve service, and I watched that happen. I watched a high school kid get up. He was the first one in line. He was like the 38th in line, and then he was the 45th in line as he continued around to take communion. And I realized, because I was one of the last ones up there, that that was live. It was, it was actual wine. And so I thought, hey, this guy's coming back for thirds. And, uh, and so the question of communion is really one that has so many variances to it that a lot of us lose the purpose or the idea behind it. And so today, what I want to do is I want to take just a few moments and I want to give you the why behind communion. And then for those of us who are sitting in the room, for those of you who may not be sitting in the room, if you're online, maybe I would encourage you to go get some bread and get some juice of some kind if you have it in the fridge, because at the end of our time together, we're going to take communion because I want to give you some understanding or the why behind it. And so let me begin with this. Communion, first off, number one, here's what happens with communion. It looks back. It looks back. For you to know that communion wasn't just something that Jesus instituted one day, there was actually a history behind communion. There was a history behind it. It was called the Passover meal, or even in modern settings, they call it the Seder. It's the opportunity of remembering something. Let me give you a quick history in about one minute. And here's what happened. There was a fellow by the name of Joseph, and he was sold into slavery, ended up in Egypt, and basically he helped Egypt to survive one of the worst famines of all time. And because of it, they basically, the Pharaoh said to Joseph, why don't you invite your family to move here? and to live in Egypt with us. And so he did. And then after a couple of generations, a Pharaoh later came along, realized how great and massive this family of Joseph was becoming. And so they enslaved them for 400 years. Joseph's family lived in slavery in Egypt. And then along came a guy named Moses. And here was the thing. The Pharaohs recognized how much they hated the Israelites or the Jewish people and so what happened was, is that one Pharaoh decided we can eradicate the Jews by eliminating every one of the males. 
And so there was a young lady that gave birth to a son, and she decided to put him in a basket, and she sent him down the river, and the Pharaoh's daughter finds this little boy, falls in love with him, and his name was Moses, and Moses was raised in the Pharaoh's court under the Pharaoh's rule as a close companion to the Pharaoh. And when Moses grew up, he eventually uh, murdered an Egyptian, so he runs away, marries a gal far away, lives in the country. God appears to him and says, you're going to redeem redeem my people. And in the course of redeeming the people, there's this list of plagues that happen. Some things that for some of us in the room, we wouldn't think so much of. Others of us would get so grossed out. But the ultimate plague in the end is that God wanted his people to find freedom. And so here's what he does. He says, here's what I want you to do. You take some blood and I want you to put it on a doorpost And an angel of death is going to pass over. And what happens is if they see the blood on the doorpost, your family is safe. If they don't see the blood on the doorpost, your oldest son dies. Can you imagine waking up in the early morning and for some reason you didn't get the memo and the wailing and the hurting and the pain that took place for the Egyptians on that day, which turned into celebration for the Israelites. And the Pharaoh finally says, that's it. You wanted freedom, you get freedom, so go. And God wanted the people of Israel to remember this day that this was a profound moment for them. And he reminded them that every year when it comes to this moment and this place, we're going to call it the Passover. Why? Because the angel passed over the Israelites and not one of their children died in that moment. And you are going to have an opportunity every year to gather as a family, to gather around, and we're going to call this the Passover. And you're going to celebrate it. In Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, they summarize this understanding of a Passover, which was a family meal that was gathered in which there was an incredible ceremony to remember this freedom. Exodus 6 says this, Therefore, God says to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression, rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. I bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Jacob, I will give it to you as your very own possession. I am the Lord. And so even to this day, if you were to take the Passover cedar, one of the things that you would know is that there are four expressions that God uses for describing the Passover. And the first one is this. And in every expression, as they're eating a meal, they pause and they take a cup of wine and everyone around the table gets the privilege of drinking the wine as they remember this part of the conversation, all taken from Exodus chapter 6. And the first thing that the people remember is the phrase, I will free you from your oppression. you love this. 400 years without a day off. 400 years, according to some, the Israelites were the ones who built the pyramids, who made the Egyptian nation this incredible powerhouse by all of the labor that they did year after year after year after year. 
And the amazing piece is that God wanted them to remind themselves every year that they were oppressed. The second thing is that in the course of the meal, they would take a second cup of wine. And what they would do is they would talk specifically about the idea of God saying, I will rescue you from your slavery. It was a reminder of the hurt and the pain that they'd endured for the sake of 400 years and the pain that went on and the fact that they were there. And so every year for hundreds of years, the Israelites would be reminded of that slavery and not for the sake of the negativity of it, but for the the sake of what would happen next. And that's where the third cup comes along. And the third cup was simply the fact that God reminded them that he would redeem them with a powerful arm. And that was the very last of the plagues, the Passover. And he reminded the Israelite nation that he loved them and cared for them. And that whenever it came time, he would protect them. They didn't even need an active army because he would provide for them and help for them. And the Israelites would remind themselves every year of the powerful arm of God. And then the fourth and the final cup that would be happening in the course of the meal. Later on throughout the meal, this was the last one, is that they would talk about this idea of God saying, I will claim you as my own people. You know, that's one of the things of slavery is that slavery surrounds itself with an understanding of what somebody might see as the idea of not knowing who their parents are. And God wanted to say, hey, look, here's the deal. When you find freedom, I want you to know that you have a parent that loves you unconditionally. And so everyone around the table would take the fourth glass of wine and in the course of taking the fourth glass of wine, they would remember this idea of the Passover. They would remember the importance of it and why each one was there and the tradition that would happen. And this tradition continued on for centuries. And in the course of this, Jesus would even refer to this tradition a number of times in his ministry. In John chapter 6, verse 53, while nobody understood what he was saying, but a year before his death, Jesus even announced this. He said, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you no one knew in the audience what he was talking about that day until a year later and then a year later in the book of Luke it's the night that Jesus died one of the things that the Israelites understood is they understood the importance of this idea that if you want redemption sacrifice has to happen and for hundreds of years God would remind them of that in the Passover and Jesus took the Passover in Luke chapter 22, verses 17 through 20. It says this, and this is where we get communion today. This is the connection of the dots that took place. It says that night that he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks for it. And then he said, take this, it's shared amongst yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. And then Jesus says, he took some bread, which was part of the Seder meal. And in the course of taking the bread, he gave thanks. He paused and he thanked God for it. And then he broke it into pieces and he gave it to each of his disciples. And he simply said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. And to the 12 disciples sitting around the table, the shift of centuries of this Passover meal began to take place 
Because Jesus wasn't dividing this and saying, let's remember our ancestors. Let's remember what Moses did. Let's remember the things that happened in our past. Instead, in this moment, Jesus says, and you see it there, this is my body. And then one of the most profound things that happened, and according to some ancient documents that we have seen, one of the things that was becoming prevalent at the time of Jesus is that during the Passover meal, they started to add a fifth cup. Because in the history of Israel, there was this incredible prophet whose name was Elijah. And Elijah was a guy that stood up to prophets of Baal. Elijah was this incredible guy that had a connection to God, but he was a precursor and continued to remind the Israelites, I am not your Savior. Someday God will produce for you a Savior, and I'm not his Savior. And what we know is that in that time, there were a number of people who would use a fifth cup. And this cup would always stay on the table. This cup would be mentioned briefly at the end of the Passover meal. And this cup would be when the leader of the Passover meal, usually the father of the family, would stand up and he would hold this up and he would say, this is the Elijah cup. Someday God will come back and he will redeem his people. Someday there will be a Messiah who will come. And we don't know because the scripture is very clear that it just says at the end of the meal. But could you imagine being one of the original 12 who's sitting around experiencing this meal with Jesus and he grabs this fifth cup and he picks it up and he partakes of the cup, something that for seven centuries no one in Israel ever did. And he says, this cup is a new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice to you. And you know the story. That was the night that Jesus was betrayed, beaten, and eventually hung on a cross for you and for me. You have to understand that communion is way beyond this understanding of a time of snacks. It's way beyond this idea of the Old Testament of remembering some practice that happened centuries before but it was really the centerpiece of Jesus bringing out this idea that said, here's the deal. If you're looking for redemption, if you're looking for freedom, if you're looking for someone to claim you as their own, then tonight is the night because now we no longer need the blood of a lamb. I will become the lamb, the lamb of God. I will shed my blood. I will die a martyr's death on a cross for you and for your sins. This is a new moment and a new day. This is why you and I gather regularly and take communion. As it looks back 
And the other thing is it also looks forward. The Apostle Paul spent some time with Jesus after Jesus resurrected. And in that, Jesus taught him a number of things. And Paul would remind us of those things in 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, where he describes this understanding of communion that you and I follow after even to this day. Churches adopted this idea after Paul wrote to the Corinthians and began to discuss and discover the importance of this. And so here's what it says in the idea of looking forward in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You can read those passages. You have a Bible, go ahead and turn it there because I want to spend the rest of our time there. But in this, here's what happens. Jesus says, every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. You see, communion isn't just a look back at the Passover and a look back at what Jesus Christ did for you and understanding that. But here's a second component about communion. It is an opportunity to look forward, to know that this guy who died on a cross for your sins, this guy who is the Lord and Savior of you, who wants you to come just as you are, to have an opportunity to recognize this specific guy in Jesus Christ will one day come back again. He will come back again and have the opportunity to redeem his people. He will come back again and do the very things that was part of the Seder process. He will come back and take us from the slavery of the sin, from the mistakes that we made. He will again come back one day and in that day we will celebrate So it isn't just to look backwards, but it's a look forward. But there's a third piece, and this is a personal piece for you. It's a look inward. Every one of us has to pause and look inside of ourselves during communion. Paul would put it this way in 1 Corinthians 11.27. He would say this, so anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon you. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. That you should understand that every time you take communion, it should literally preach a sermon for you. It should be an opportunity for you to pause and be reminded of the history of how God, through Jesus, freed you personally. It should be a pause for you to be reminded how he didn't just give you freedom, but he also rescued you. How he lifted you up, how he redeemed you, and how he claims you as his own. You see, this understanding of communion is a powerful and serious reminder to you. 
And my encouragement to you today is that if you've not given your life to Christ, I would encourage you to pause in this moment and to say, Jesus, please come into my life. Why? Because Jesus was the sacrifice for your sin. Jesus was the sacrifice for the things that you struggled with. He was the reason behind why this meal that took place for hundreds upon hundreds of years, 15 centuries before he came along, that he would come and bring this idea to say, today, this is the day that history is made. This is the day that I'm willing to free you from your oppression, that I'm willing to rescue from the pain and the sorrow of the mistakes you've made in your life, and I'm willing to redeem you as my own. And then, I want you to know that you're part of the family. And this powerful and serious reminder is something that should take place every time you and I take communion. And so if you're a believer in the room, if you've given your life to Christ, then every time we gather that we take communion, this should be a pause for you from the craziness of your world to say, Jesus, thank you. If you're worried about all the things in your world around you, it's the one time that you say, you loved me this much. And I pray that this inward thought is a continuous reminder to you because it's the only individual piece of communion. It doesn't end there. For most of us, it does. For most of you, you grew up in, in opportunities like many of us where communion was a personal thing between you and God. But that wasn't the idea behind it. You see, the people who were the first Christians understood this Passover celebration and they understood that there was a family uh, aspect about this, that it was a, a corporate idea and a corporate aspect. So it isn't just an inward thing, but here's the fourth and final thing is that communion looks outward. It looks at the community that's around us. Communion is something that's shared with other believers. You see, here's the original intent of what would happen is that when people would gather together in the early church, what they would do is they would share a meal together. And so they would sit down and they would have this meal. And so there was generally a worship service that would take place. And, uh, and you can imagine in, in, Corinth, in Corinth what a lot of believers, uh, a lot of scholars believe is that they had like a bigger room. And so everybody would come in the room like we do in this moment. And we would celebrate by having worship service. And one of the leaders would get up and teach a message and encourage us in Jesus and understand it. And then what would happen is, is that people would then exit the room and they would clear out the chairs and they would start putting up some tables and everyone would gather in the room around tables. Well, the problem is, is that you can imagine a packed full room of individuals and when you put tables and chairs, you can't get everybody in. And so here's the problem that was happening in the early church. And this is why Paul had to address this in 1 Corinthians. Because what would happen is, is that when they put the tables and chairs in and then now all of a sudden there's not room for everybody in the room. And so the, po the people who were supposedly the wealthier people, the people who were the most connected were the ones who got to sit in the room. 
I don't know about you, but I, I grew up in a system in which Thanksgiving dinner, you had to wait for like three more ants to die before you could make it to the big table. Show of hands, anybody here ever have that happen? Okay, some of you are still waiting for two ants to die, right? You're just every year, you, oh gosh, thought this was the year, but it's not. And the sad part was is that after all the ants die, we quit having regular Thanksgiving dinners with the family. It's, a, it's like, dude, I've waited all these years for the big table. Now I can't get to the big table. And so it's the same kind of concept that happens here. You see, the people that got to sit in the room, they were the ones that were being served first. And so they were part of the communion time or the, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. They were gathering together and they were serving and they were eating and, and it's a, a huge party. And so they were serving wine, which is the pretty common drink of its day. And so people are eating, they're getting stuffed, they're getting drunk. And in the course of getting stuffed and drunk, the poorer people were outside the room and the poorer people weren't ready to get, weren't ready even to eat yet. And so they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting for these people to to finish up and while they're waiting they're hoping that this would be a time and the problem was is that while this was supposed to be an opportunity where the family gathered together and everybody got to celebrate exactly what Jesus did and the fact that he sacrificed for you and for me here's what would happen in that moment people were left out and Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 21 when he says this some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. And as a result, some go hungry and others just get drunk. And so this moment that's supposed to be reminded that Christ died for your sins has turned into a party. And in that party, it's really for those who are there, who have given some stuff, those who are people in the community that everybody wants to be around, those who are the most recognizable people, and those who are the leftovers, those who felt left out, are standing outside the room waiting for a table to come open so that they can share in this moment. And I want you to understand that Paul was pretty direct. And one of the reasons why in this day we don't really serve meals as part of communion has everything to do with Paul saying, guys, here's what I want you to know. The purpose behind this is to remember the sacrifice of Christ with believers in the room and not to have a meal. Because sometimes when you get together and you eat, you forget the reason why you're there. And so he's saying, look, if you're hungry, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 11, if you're hungry, eat at home. Eat before you come. Don't come hungry and ready to dive in so that when the pastor's done speaking, you're going to run as fast as you can and get the buffet line and eat as much as you possibly can. Eat at home. Recognize the purpose of doing this together. We are in this as an outward piece to know. And when you look around the room, for you to see that others are taking communion and to know they are a part of the family of God in the same way that you as an individual are a part of the family of God.